0: Welcome to the Cloud Pod where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan and Matthew.
1: Episode 242 recorded for the week of January 3rd, 2023. Do DNS over HTTPS, one more way for it to be DNS's faults. Good evening Jonathan, Matt and Ryan.
2: Hey guys. Hello. Hello. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.
1: Yeah, happy new year. It's uh it feels a lot like twenty twenty three, but just twenty twenty-four. And actually I think I even said the date wrong when I said it. Just to <laughs> just to make it you know, I know that I notice it, but I won't fix it because eh, not that we're not that professional of a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh it's you know, one of many times I've written the wrong date this week already. So there you go. Yeah. Uh well, you know, we had a good episode last week where we covered out twenty twenty three and we wrapped things up and uh Matt did a bunch of research uh, to figure out how many announcements came from both AWS and Azure by uh, you know mining the depths of the RSS feeds and my show notes, and then we totally forgot about it because <laughs> we suck. <laughs> uh, and so, Matt, uh, you you did something for us last week for the uh, recap show that I thought we should follow up with, uh, and and what is that exactly, Matt? What did you do?
2: I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> I was actually trying to make sure the numbers were accurate to the last day, but. We'll go with the numbers that I had. So I was curious when we were doing the review of the 2023 of how many announcements the cloud actually had put out there. Um, and Google's was a little bit harder to figure out. Um, but I went through and looked at AWS and Azure. And for Azure, specifically what was g because they have a nice filter on their page, unlike AWS, where you just have to look through lots and lots of fun announcements. Um, but... Out of curiosity, does anybody have a guess of how many AWS announcements there were last year?
0: Uh, 271.
2: Are we just GA announcements? All announcements, because I couldn't filter.
1: All announcements? I would say it was 1,700.
3: Whoa. Right?
2: Three, 304. <laughs> 2,697. Oh, Wow. Oh. And that was whatever day we recorded. So there was a few days left in the years. There might be a few extras. Yeah, they didn't really. They
1: didn't really do anything after, after we recorded because it was uh, New Year's weekend. All that. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's a lot. I was I was pretty close. I feel pretty good about that. So yeah. I mean, I do look at them every week. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I know how many I ignored uh, when I did show notes. And, you know, the one thing, um, you know, I was looking at when you were talking about how many things we had. Two hundred and fifty pages in the twenty twenty three show note archive. <laughs> so every every episode, the show notes that we use to record the show, I, I archive them off. And that's how we do figure out best favorite announcements of the year. And I go back and look at this when you guys were like, didn't we talk about that once? And I can go find it and say, yes, we did talk about it in what episode it was. Uh, and I have them for every episode of the podcast we've ever done since number one. But uh, for, I reset the file every year and create a new one. And so, yeah, last year was 250 pages. So, yeah, <laughs> it was a lot of news for all the cloud providers. Let alone Amazon. And last year we cut down quite a bit because we got rid of the lightning round, um, and we I I was much more um, murderous in my show topic titling <laughs> selection because uh, I uh, you know if it wasn't interesting enough to me to talk about, uh, I decided it wasn't worthy. And so and then sometimes you guys will come back and say like, "Hey, why didn't you shut up with this show?" And I'd be like, "Fine, we'll talk about it now because you cared." <laughs> but otherwise, if I didn't care and you guys didn't say anything,
2: I just. <laughs> so. Okay, so what about for Azure? Just GA announcements.
1: Oh, just GA for Azure? That's like 80.
0: <laughs> Jonathan? <laughs> uh d- you can't does that include like announcing things in regions which previously didn't have it, or is this like new things? It's just general availability.
2: So. now I have to like go look up to see what <laughs> that was. And obviously I did this, you know, over a week ago, so I don't have anything open. 45. Uh, it, under under the announcement is the has a filter and I put now available
0: okay
2: 45 i think they renamed
0: since last week okay five million and 45 of which five million <laughs> were ai and 45 were not ai <laughs> yeah uh, yeah
2: <laughs> right uh
3: 800
2: well one i also like this announcement that we definitely need to talk about generally available aks supports api breaking changes cool um <laughs> Sweet. 521
1: i'm, I'm oh. shocked it was that high
2: <laughs> yeah
1: i mean if you did google it had to be pretty low i mean i there's a rss feed that i actually just remembered that you probably would have wanted but i don't think it actually existed for the full year so i think it doesn't go back but for next year you'll have a, a good rss feed to get that for
2: Google. I actually pulled it from like the actual web page, and then, you know, just count a number per page times how many pages We're in 2023 and Google's.
1: I mean, what you didn't want to mess with XML scroll. files. You could have used, you could have used machine learning on XML of the RSS feed.
2: So I wonder actually if I just asked, well, I guess all the open AI stuff has end dates and stuff. So it wouldn't have been up to the last minute.
1: Yeah. The problem is uh, they're all behind. all the time. Yeah. Yeah. But you could, you could create your own model and just feed the RSS feeds into your own model. And then you control the expense and how up-to-date it is.
2: And then I've officially stopped caring about doing this.
1: Yeah. And you're making too much work. If you did it. So (laughs) (laughs) that's how uh, that's how it went for the show note automation that Ryan promised me three years ago. He's he's lost interest (laughs) too. (laughs) Yeah. He had to authenticate with the Google Doc and he was like, I'm out. Yeah.
2: Now, now I'm trying to do it because I'm insane. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to pull Ryan Lucas back into that project. So about or, 2024. Or,
1: <laughs> you're going you guys are gonna complain about for so long that Jonathan's just gonna be like, <laughs> you idiots, and go find some piece of open source code that someone else already wrote and just plug it into a Python and give it to you. That's that's how it probably go down, because that's how it goes when I'm doing stuff. Jonathan just like, here, just here's a code snippet. <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan. I appreciate it. Uh, all right, well, let's get to uh news since uh we are terrible at estimating the number of uh announcements that came out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on azure because uh i was nowhere close to 800 on that one like 10x less than i should have been i mean i do black out most of the a- azure announcements just for sake. you're better off it's fine <laughs> all right well, let's go to our favorite segment of ai is how ml makes money uh which the monies are coming fast and furious apparently according to the informations article uh OpenAI's annualized revenue topped $1.6 billion as customers shrugged off the CEO drama. Uh, and they are able to say that because uh, they had a number from inter- two internal sources uh, from mid-October that their annual revenue for the year was $1.3 billion. Uh, and by end of year, by mid-December time frame, it was $1.6 billion, which is a 20 cent, 20% growth rate over two months. Uh, and this happened all, of course, during the craziness of the OpenAI board fiasco that you guys talked about a few weeks ago here on the show when I was out. Uh, and this basically roughly means OpenAI is making over a hundred and thirty million a month uh for the sales of subscriptions. And yes, I'm paying them twenty dollars a month. So I'm included in that number. Is that profit? Or just that's, revenue? that's
3: revenue. Okay. So that, yeah, they're not announcing like their operating costs. Like because if it was already like a you know, a profitable business this early, I would be shocked.
1: And they would have gone public.
3: Right. <laughs> yeah. Immediately, yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I'm sure this is a. Uh, it, they made 1.3 billion or 1.6 billion dollars in revenue, and they spent 25 billion dollars. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's the, the current scenario uh, in the uh, OpenAI business books. But uh, yeah, that's why they had to get 10 billion dollar investment
3: from Amazon or from Azure just to pay their own bill. Yeah, and I thought some of the the board drama was about you know sort of the direction of making money or not, and, and differences that surrounded that. So it's kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, I think that was part of it. And also, I think there was some safety stuff and, you know, AI ethics integrity, you know, disagreements about you can make it less safe, but, you know, should you? And that I think is still been something they're trying to figure out. But uh, those board members are gone, so now they can yeah. do whatever they want to.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: All right, moving on to AWS. Uh it was a very quiet couple of weeks, so the stories are not super exciting. <laughs> First up, uh AWS Canada West. Or the Calgary region is now available uh, CA-West-1 has opened a third, as the 33rd uh, AWS region with three AZs with 70 services available at launch, uh, available for all your Canadian needs, eh? Nice.
2: <laughs> is that the second one in Canada? Uh,
1: this is, is the, the third? third I think because Montreal is one of them and uh, there
2: is one in Vancouver, I think. I'm it's double checking second. right now. It's. I thought it was the second, but it's then I wasn't sure if I was confusing AWS and Azure.
1: I mean, that's. I might be confusing them as well. <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm you <only> that second.
2: <laughs> All right, because yeah. I mean, it makes sense because you know we definitely deal with at my day job. You know, a lot of customers that want data to live in certain countries, so you, you kind of have to have the secondary regions there just support you know true DR.
1: Well, uh, so the other confusion is that there's also local zones <laughs>
2: uh,
1: and there is a uh, Vancouver local zone as well as Toronto and yeah, just those two local zones. So yeah, so that's uh, that makes it harder to remember which ones are what. <laughs> so now you have two full regions in Canada, which is a boot time. Right, I'm, 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 done with, I'm done with Canadians. <laughs> that's all I got.
0: <laughs> if that's Canadian, I'd apologize. on on behalf of the podcast, but I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) I apologize for my bad jokes.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm excited to announce that the Doe protocol, or Doe, uh, which is DNS over HTTPS, uh, continues to take over the world, coming for your Route 53 resolver with support for DNS over HTTPS protocol for both inbound and outbound resolver endpoints. Uh, Ryan actually read this article earlier, and he mentioned to me that it's a requirement for FIPS, which I did not know, uh, but apparently a FIPS compliance requirement for DOH or dash fips for inbound endpoints is available with this, as well as uh, all your TLS-based encryption uh, and UDP and TCP capabilities uh, over port 4353, which is the DOE 53 versus the DOE, which is the HTTPS. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I thought it was uh, kind of interesting because I, I hadn't heard of that specific compliance need for FIPS before. and you know, like DNSSEC has been around for a very long time and it's just barely made it re- fairly recently into a lot of these compliance uh, implementations. And so, like, it's this is moving quite fast and I was curious on that, how they were, you know, actually going to set this up because I was trying to figure out if they were going to configure clients for HTTPS transactions. But it doesn't seem to be really at the client level or at least at the end client. It's more of... Uh, configurations you put on your, you know, conditional forwards, forwarders in your elsewhere in your domain so that you can talk over a secure protocol, which pretty cool.
1: I guess, I mean, eventually I would assume it gets, ends up at endpoints as well. Uh, wouldn't you? Or would you think it never gets to endpoints based on your limited knowledge of this?
3: You know, it, I can see it being an option where you, maybe you configure your local client. You know, DNS is one of those things where, you know, you, it, most people don't think about it. Um, You know, it's just sort of one of the magic ways the internet just goes. Um, I thought it was pretty interesting that they were posturing this as sort of a, a zero trust implementation. And so that that was sort of what got my, piqued my interest uh, because I thought that they were trying to do sort of that end client resolver. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Like it's, I can see a major sea change, but I mean, as as long as it's taken IPv6 to take off and some of these other sort of lower level configurations, I think UDP port fifty three DNS is probably going to be here for quite a while.
1: There's also apparently a DNS over TLS, which I'm not really sure why that's different DA, than over HTTPS because they both implement a TLS protocol, uh, so sort of weird. But uh, I, do, I was curious here if I could query that and I can just run a simple curl command but you to do an HTTP header to do application slash DNS dash JSON uh, or DNS dash message depending on what you want to get back and then you can basically do pass it into JQ, everyone's favorite tool uh, and get an output of that. So I, that's kind of interesting. So yeah, I mean, I guess even in a web, you could use it in a web application if you wanted mm-hmm. to do DNS lookup that way versus uh, using your route 53 UDP protocol. But I think that would be I don't know how you get from the web browser or a web application down into lower level stack to provide the. Maybe just give it an IP address at that point. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. lots of questions. Not <laughs> a lot. Of, not a lot of details at this moment for me. <laughs> but yeah, that note's there. Especially if you need to do FIPS compliance.
0: Yeah, in, a, in Ubuntu at least you can you can install a DNS uh, DNS dist and then configure that to reach out to HTTPS, but then you configure the the local. I think it's to point to your local resolver, so it's kind of it's still slightly abstracted from the from the uh, apps, but mm-hmm. it's still local. And that was the, the sort of the walkthrough that
3: was behind the blog post. It walks you through that setup where you're actually setting it up uh, on your like forwarding domain that could be in your data center or in your office or your home pointed to a Route 53 zone, which is configured for HTTPS. It's kind of neat.
1: Uh, well, this is one of those weird blog posts that we typically don't cover, but it's slow news week. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Justin Garrison, who is a Devrel at uh, Amazon, at least he was as of December 30th when he posted this blog post, uh, which was Amazon silent sacking. Uh, he's a Devrel on the Kubernetes team for EKS, uh, and basically he talks about all the layoffs that occurred since 2023, the return to office policy, and the enforcement confusion around that, and that. That's basically forced a lot of people to start leaving in droves or looking or waiting for their next RSU payout before finding something new. Uh, He basically concludes anyone who's not uh, basically over level 7 wants out of uh, Amazon at this point. And that's because, you know, their total comp is between 400 and 800,000 for as much money uh, they can put up with many, many inconveniences like return to office. As Amazon's pay is 40% stock, it's very tied to the stock price. And so they have a desperate need to increase the stock price as much as possible or keep it at high levels. Uh, and to do that, you have to keep lowering your operating costs, which means taking out people. Uh, you know, he says that, you know, while Amazon's uh, continuing to grow, it's growing at a much lower rate, which we've talked about many times here. Uh, and that Amazon has been in an overall hiring freeze that he feels is going to uh, definitely impact uh, customers long term. Uh, so between the forced RTO uh, and the silent attrition that's happening, basically he's saying two pizza box teams are decimated, uh, and that the overall idea of them is great. They're the best implementation devops he's ever seen, but they require people and expense. And to make that not expensive, you move into centralized teams. And Amazon has never had either platform engineering or site reliability engineering capabilities. Uh, and so, you know, the most likely situation is that you'll see continue to so see attrition, and we've seen attrition through Twitter uh, of quite a few Amazon people. <laughs> and basically, that'll result in potentially major AWS outages in 2024, which is why we talked. That's why I decided we should talk about this because <laughs> so an interesting takeaway. Uh, He did mention that there has been an increase in large-scale events at Amazon already, but many customers haven't noticed because they only have to update the dashboard of the customers who are impacted. Uh, And while overall, you know, he does seem a bit jaded about his situation there, uh, he is in a bad situation around his status as he was told to find another gig. Uh, But none of the gigs in the company uh, are available to him unless they want to take less money or lower title or have worse RTO options. Uh, and the lack of that was asked, had him ask for severance pay, which they had to give him. And so basically, he's silently quitting, uh, waiting for them to lay him off. And that's why, why I wrote a blog post to help accelerate that outcome. But uh, overall, the uh, the key thing about it was really the outages part that I want to talk about. And kind of, you know, do we consider the brain drain that we've seen at Amazon to be a risk uh, that we should be worried about as cloud engineers?
3: You know, when, whenever there's these kind of internal manifestos about business, there's always their sort of a, a threat or a veiled threat of that. And it doesn't really pay out. Even with Twitter, while there was low-level disruption, it was far less than the uh, end is near cries that people were expecting when, when some of their changes were implemented. And so I, I've never really seen it pan out that way. Um, that doesn't mean it won't affect the business. And it doesn't mean that you know things behind the scenes won't get harder to operate. And things will be harder to work on, and it'll be even more difficult to innovate. And you know, things that we may not see as a customer, because um, there was, you know, a huge drove of people that left for sure.
0: So they don't have SRA. Like, how how do they scale those two pizza teams to run their services in thirty three regions? Surely, there's more to it than that. Well, I mean, so they've, you know, they've talked about this, you know, some of their processes and
3: procedures, you know, reinvent and stuff, and they they have a huge pipeline, they've, they've, they've done a lot via instrumentation. So, uh you know, teams can, as long as they're, you know, pushing their, their changes through this pipeline, it it automatically rolls out and automatically tests. And it's, you know, and then you're just on the hook for your own service, which I kind of like, and that's, you know, one of the unique things about the way Amazon structures these things. And they don't have that sort of central team that everything goes through. It's just all internal tooling. With that said, you know, it is, Oh, you know, if you're going to cut operating costs, that centralization is sort of key.
2: I mean, there is always some level of platform engineering, you know. Like like you said, somebody has to build that pipeline that deploys to 33 regions.
1: You know? Yeah, so they do. He did S- talk about uh, pipelines, SDKs, and security are all centralized, uh, right? And, and tooling. So that you know that makes sense. That those are those are centralized tools. But yeah, the you know the reality the prior- is that they they practice what they preach. is so, you know, they build cloud native applications that can scale and fault tolerant. And they do A B testing and they do uh you know. Canary deployments, and they do error rate detection, and they they deal with stuff. So even when you're at Amazon, you know if you are on call, you know mostly the automation will take care of whatever the issues are, so you don't have to get woken up. And if they can't, then they then you get paged in, and you have to deal with it. Um, mm-hmm. And you have ability to call, you know, larger scale incidents and pull in multiple teams. And I think why there are there are multiple two pizza box teams on some of the larger services. Um, so there's probably depth through those multiple two pizza box teams. Newer products probably are limited to how many two two, two pizza Docs teams they actually have, and that could be problematic. But the, the brain drain of those is you know those people leaving is the bigger risk of that because if you haven't had a centralized team to date, and now you want to try to centralize those things, you need to be able to train the centralized team, and that mm-hmm. is problematic if all the people who built it are gone.
2: I mean, I always said like, if you leave a company, things will run for a period of time. So if you're in IT and you leave. The servers are going to run for a little while. At one point, things will start to fail out, whether it's the hard drive, the software, whatever it is. So the question is, can they, being Amazon, make sure that they cross-train, get enough people up to speed that are still there before you start to see these outages?
1: It worked for Twitter.
2: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I've had my services
3: bit rot while I was still employed at a company, and I can't remember what I did six months ago, so I don't know. You know, like at a certain point, there's a, <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? Like if you've moved on, you know, even within the company, there's, you know, there's always a bit of reverse engineering and, and replacement that I think happens just naturally. And Yeah. Um, it's, you know, there's no doubt it'll have an effect, but is it the catastrophe that people think it is? I don't know.
2: I mean, I don't think it's going to be Amazon goes down like they did when S3 and US East one had to reboot years ago. You know, um, that, I think it's a lot more of the years at this point because I think that was like 16 or 17. But like, I think you're going to start to see parts of services fail because they have the two pizza box team and everything is more isolated out. So yeah, I think potentially different teams, you know, that have had a lot more attrition will have failure. So maybe these specific APIs within, you know, within RDS might have a problem, but it's not going to be all of RDS that completely...
0: Dies. still kind of concerning in general though that they're forcing this return to office and I kind of wonder are they forcing it to cut costs because they know people will um drop out because they've overhired or are they're really dead set on having people return to office because i think that's the best thing it's, it's also going to impact their ability to execute on new products if they yeah. give a bunch of people
3: i mean that's where i think there'll be more impact impacted this, this is their ability to innovate and release new changes and new services i think that's going to be they'll be behind the eight ball and some of the ai research um and and they'll be a little bit behind on just general quality of life improvements on the existing services
2: but to be fair i feel like amazon is so far ahead on quality of life things that i don't think i'm gonna notice <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah there's definitely uh you know, challenges around, you know, those type of issues that we've seen and the amount of things they announce, the amount of things that they can hide behind, you know, they have ability, And, you know, right now everyone just wants them to get AI. <laughs> so as long as they're announcing AI for shiny things, the stock market won't notice them either.
3: It's true. It is true.
0: Have you been waiting months and months to hire a new AWS GCP Azure Architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiatives stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Falcorn Consulting. Falcon Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Foghorn's certified AWS, GCP, and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the cloud CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul, and they bring their own juice.
1: All right, let's move on to our next story. Uh... Cloud at uh, Cloud CISO perspective from GCP was released, uh, which is their 2024 cybersecurity forecast report. This is a collaborative effort across several Google Cloud security teams, including Mandiant Intelligence, Mandiant Consulting, Chronicle Security Operations, Google Cloud's Office of the CISO, and VirusTotal. And uh, if you are paying attention, one of those didn't seem to fit, which was the <laughs> last one. I <laughs> didn't know what that was. I had to go look it up, and I realized it was an acquisition they had done. Let's go. Uh, there's five key uh, points from their report around cybersecurity. Generative AI to drive defender conversations. As CISOs become more accountable, so will the C-suite and boards. Uh, expect more consolidation around SecOps. And attacks targeting hybrid and multi cloud environments will have an increased impact. And collaboration and cybersecurity will increase across the workplace. Uh, so those are their big trends in 2024. Not a, a lot of really... You know, revolutionary stuff there. But the one that I thought was most interesting is really around the C suite and the boards. Because again, I'm an executive. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, this is a big deal. So you know, after Solar Winds uh, basically got sued, you know, for a lot of money by their shareholders and the SEC basically fined them a lot of money. Uh, we're now in this world where the SEC has published new rules, basically, um, you know, requiring law liability directly to the CISO. Uh, and that you can be now found guilty for doing different things, and so that'll be require, you know, CSOs to require individual accountability. They'll want more insurance and legal support, and clearly uh, articulated accountabilities for cybersecurity and risk issues at the board and senior leadership level, which will make all of our jobs harder. <laughs> so, security is coming in a big way. It's been coming for a while, uh, but now that you know there's actual dollar signs tied to these things. Uh, you know, you will start seeing SEC rules uh, starting to be enforced pretty aggressively across the CISO suite as well as the other board members. The um, One of the interesting things, too, is like a lot of the issues that SolarWinds had is, you know, they had reports where they went to a security third party and they did a penetration test and they had findings and then they didn't do anything with those findings. <laughs> uh, and so a lot of those documents now are going to become sort of things that become privileged uh, or legal protected uh, for businesses because of the ability for them to be found in discovery and the liability risk that they open up to your business. So expect to see a lot of changes in the way that those things are getting communicated and worked out with your CISO uh,
3: and your partners and your businesses. Yeah, I don't know if I'm for that, right? Because I don't think that, you know, hiding those things behind discovery rules or anything like that is really helping anything. No, it makes it worse. Yeah, and so like, it's, you know, like, I, I don't, You know, and I don't really think we're going to see a whole lot of board members be held accountable for the security. I I really don't. Um, I think they'll continue to scapegoat CISOs like they always happen. And, you know, even with SolarWinds, like it's the CISO that's, you know, being held accountable directly, which is new and unique. And, but I also don't know if it's really going to help the security practices and for these things. It's just going to put people on the defensive and, and they're not going to want to, you know, do penetration tests. They're not going to want to test those securities if, if that thing could, can all be used directly to hold them accountable or just be interpreted
0: the wrong way. I'm just worried nobody will want to be a CISO in the future. Who's going to want to take on that risk? I mean, Who, who will want to join a company because they need a, a CISO, presumably because they've got problems that need to be fixed, knowing that there's problems that haven't been fixed I mean, what, what a huge amount of risk to take on unless, unless there are some rules around where, you know, you get like a, you know, three, three to six month period of time by, you know, which you're not liable, but perhaps there's more transparency in, in actions that you take or information that you have. I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I wouldn't want to be a CISO um, knowing that I'm going to be personally accountable for the failure of the company to execute on implementing necessary security.
2: My only hope with a lot of this is hopefully that means a lot of this will mean that the CISO actually gets more, you know, um, oh my brain just died. Like l- power, leverage, you know, the ability to work with other teams to say, look, there is there are these vulnerabilities. This needs to get into your next sprint and release with the next you know version of the product. Not oh, we'll just keep getting to it and blow them off. You know, hopefully this means that you know there will be talks at higher levels and say no this stuff actually needs to get fixed you know sure it's you know a specific package as a vulnerability but like you actually need to go fix it not be like it's fine it's like behind these other things you know when people actually will take security into consideration when they build and design products day one too
3: i think it's also important to recognize that you know the sec's Filing is, is specifically about the fraud and the um, alleged sort of statements to public, you know, about their cybersecurity practices, and and you know, I think it's very different from actually managing security, which you know is obviously not, you know, wasn't good either. But you know, like the liability part, like it's it's always the cover up that's you know worse than the crime. Right? So it's like I hope that, you know, I I. I hope that through the the trial and the finding, which I assume, I don't know, I guess SEC changes could go through, you know, the motions. Um, I hope that we get, you know, enough information to realize just, you know, if there was actually any wrongdoing, if it was actually fraud or was it, you know, is it, you know, sort of if you, if you are skeptical about those actions or, you know, if you give a, you know, you know what is all the like a uh, uh, no not, my brain just died thanks Matt so you're welcome
2: mm-hmm. so first week that, of the year haven't quite you know got it off the cobwebs <laughs> of staying up to midnight <laughs> I
0: think part of the problems that some of the controls are just really poorly worded they're worded in ways which are easy to not implement in the way in which they're intended things just become check boxes. Do you have a control that you know to, or do do you have some way of uh, implementing this particular control? Yes, yes, we do. Does it work? Maybe. Is it as good as it should be? No. I think I think some of the controls should be, especially around finance and healthcare, should be a lot more prescriptive um, than they are today. But it kind of makes me think. I mean, even if even if Solar Winds was about the fraud, um, think about like Mr. Cooper losing how many one hundred forty six million customers. Uh, personal information, bank account numbers, social security numbers, names and addresses—like how? I don't care if there's no fraud involved there. That's a complete failure to, to secure that data. They should say they should be held accountable. I think the
3: company should be held accountable for sure. It's the, but the the individuals within that company—like I don't know. Like but but that's the that's many- the part I get a little bit. You know weird out about just because, especially since the, the, the language in the, the SEC's complaint is very vague about what, what actually is a false and misleading statement. Mm-hmm. Um, like It doesn't really get into the specifics of this is where, you know, and, if, you know, I can, I can read through it and I can interpret it either way, right? It's like the, the password policy wasn't really protecting the, you know, the security of the environment is one way to look at it, but also sort of the, there's a password policy and you know, like it's made so that it can be usable and you can, you can sort of hem and haw and, and litigate sort of what that security best practice is and, and weigh that against, you know, the operations of your business. And, you know, like everything's going to be a compromise and, and it's an attack, right? So it's like, is what's a complete failure? If there's a new, if there's a, you know, a new type of breach and your layers break down, like, is it, is it the company's fault for being attacked? It's, it's tricky to say. Like, you know, I think these things have to be sort of weighed
0: as individuals. That's fair. I mean, we don't have enough data yet, but the, the fact that that information could be lost, presumably as easily as it was. I mean, there better have been some serious inside job with access to encryption keys or some unpredictable, you know, some black swan of a failure, which, which led to this kind of thing happening. But it probably wasn't. It was probably something dumb. It was probably an email that somebody clicked and opened.
3: (laughs) Or, you know, the the load balancer forwarding to the S3 bucket.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it's...
2: (laughs) The biggest risk to most companies is the end users. And there's only so much you can protect against at one point. So, you know, all those phishing training that I'm sure all of us has done. And when you start a new job or your yearly cybersecurity training that, you know, is there for a reason but you know one wrong person with the wrong access then to move laterally and kind of go from there you know most companies it's not a if you're going to get hacked at this point it's more when and making sure that you have your data isolated and you know enough controls in place enough monitoring in place that you find it quick enough maybe that's a grim view on the world but that's where i feel like we are
0: Uh, mm-hmm. I think I think failures like this are just going to drive changes in technology. I mean, there's no reason they should keep they, they should have my social security number beyond the initial verification of identity. For example, like why why aren't we using hashes? Why can't they go to the social security website and say, "Give me a temporary number, Let's give me a code that I can pass to Mister Cooper or somebody else that they can use to verify my identity, which is basically unusable by anybody else if it's ever stolen or revocable." But there's yeah. the fact that we walk around with these Ten-digit numbers, which stick with us for life, and once they're lost, they're lost, and you can't ever get a new one. It just blows my mind. Yeah, <laughs> no,
3: I think there's some things where it's you know we have to adapt to the the, the technology changes, and and I think that social security numbers are a pretty uh, a pretty strong evidence, you know, of like that's the old way, right? This used to make a lot more sense, you know, because it was hard to get that. Well, number. it was it was just
1: a number that they chose because it mm-hmm. was something that everybody had assigned for mm-hmm. social security benefits. But yeah, it's very quickly proven to be a really bad choice. And so, yeah, what its original purpose is, it should should be a social security number uh, to get you social security when you're retiring. And that's why there's no incentive of the government to change the model uh, because it's serving its one purpose, which is getting you its its retirement benefits. Uh, You know, the fact that we then layered on an entire credit risk management program on top of it is why that's a problem. And so those. Those companies have to be incentivized to give you a different identifier, you know, tied to something that is changeable or something that they can control or you can give temporary access to. Um, and that's it's really on the credit bureaus, in my opinion, to fix that problem.
2: All I can think about is Mr. Burnt and the Simpsons going, <laughs> social security number 000001. Damn you. Or it might be two. I have now okay, going to look at yeah. the
0: YouTube video of this later on.
2: <laughs> well,
0: I think the problem is you, you you try and tell people that they should really, for the, in their own interests, carry around a national ID card with a number on it, and they will break loose. Yeah. Even though they already have that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but if, again, if you that's why it has to be private industry because it's like, well, if you would like to get a credit card, then you need this number, and that will force that process without having to deal with politics.
0: Yeah, and then you look at some out alt- some Altman's thing with the the, the world coin and scanning people's irises to prove you know mm-hmm. that they're human. That really kind of is a step in the in the direction towards that kind of identity as a service. So yeah, we'll see.
1: <laughs> Indeed. All right, let's move on to Azure. Uh, So uh, in December, I missed this article, but they announced a bunch of new AI capabilities to their models as a service program, uh, which, uh, first of all, they added Llama 2. Uh, Llama 2, of course, is the meta uh, model, and that allows you to play with it, do specialization, etc. They've also added several multimodal AI capabilities, including DALI 3, GPT 3.5 Turbo, and GPT 4. And GPT-4 Turbo with Vision, as well as they now support fine-tuning of the Azure OpenAI, including Babbage 2, DaVinci 2, and GPT-35 Turbo, uh, and GPT-4 updates the model, as well as ability for fine-tuning on GPT-4, all available to you now as -as models-as-a-service or mass. (laughs) mess. I just
0: wish I had the money to play with it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Meaningfully.
0: I mean, it's one thing I've seen. You can
1: download Llama 2 on your laptop and use your new fancy ARM-based Mac
0: processor GPU. I know I could try that. I I have Lama two downloaded on this this uh, machine I'm on right now, but uh, it's slow. Yeah, I mean, try try the GPUs on the uh,
1: on the how Yeah, works. I, might <laughs> I try don't know if they're working or not. I mean, but I no s- suspect
3: it will. It's just how fast, right? Yeah, like how fast will it be? Um, and you're not training, right? Like it's the other thing too is when you're evoking these models. Through that, you're not building the models. There's a level of customization stuff where you still get into that. But you're, you're exercising the, the already built models.
1: Yeah. So no. uh, test, my, test my knowledge of AI, if you're just accessing the model, that's where you use inference nodes?
0: That's right. Okay. Inference. Starting the, to learn. <laughs> the, the problem is on, on smaller GPUs, which you know, pretty much anybody has at home, you, you have to kind of round down the, the precision of the model Um, to make it fit in memory sensibly. And so you like chop off, you know, they're eight bit models, but you chop off uh, the the least important four bits. So you really kind of impact the the performance of the model. Um, So it fits in memory. Mm -hmm. I see. Uh, So yeah, what I really want for Christmas is uh, like an H100 or something, which is only (laughs) $24,000.
2: Well, maybe by next year it will be cheaper. Uh, We could start the worst
3: GoFundMe ever. (laughs)
1: <laughs> but then the but then the problem will be that the the you know the models now need more processing power. So you're of always course, it's, yeah. a, it's always win. a
3: race. They
0: no. yeah. are going to continue to grow.
1: Uh, so I did find a medium post that talks about how you can uh, basically run Llama 2 on a Mac M1. And yeah, memory is of course the one one problem <laughs> that you would always have. Uh, and they also have xformers, a bunch of stuff in here. So I'll send you a link.
0: Yeah, I mean <laughs> but, you can run it on CPU as well because. Yeah, we have got a whole, whole bunch. It's nowhere near as fast on a CPU. No, uh, but it does. It does work.
1: Well, look forward to Jonathan telling us all about it someday. <laughs> <laughs> Uh all right. I you know that was kind of it for new news from the main three providers. So then I I said, well, I'll go look at Oracle news, because there's probably be something from Oracle I haven't talked about lately, and uh they had anything either. So then I uh you know we talked about DigitalOcean a few weeks ago and their uh, managed Kubernetes service, and I said, Well, what's going on over at DigitalOcean? And so I found the, a product update that I thought I'd share. Uh so first of all, you know, I do they do have that Kubernetes service that I mentioned. Uh they also bought a uh, AI company called Paperspace. Uh, so they have basically their own AI platform that supports the G- the uh, NVIDIA H100s, uh, which I guess Jonathan, you can run your model on DigitalOcean. Maybe that's a cheaper option for you. Looking to that, I'll uh, check it out. Yeah, and then uh, they have a uh, DigitalOcean Managed Kafka was just announced, uh, which is a fully managed event streaming platform as a service. Uh, They also have a new backup capability and they have a new scalable storage option for Postgres and MySQL managed instances that increases the storage without upgrading the full cluster. So you don't have to take downtime. They have some new DDoS capabilities, some new support things, uh, and that's all the new stuff that they have right now that I care to talk about. But, uh, you know, time (laughs) to see. I, I, you know, with moving to Kubernetes and moving to containers, like the ability to use DigitalOcean for a lot of workloads is much, uh, much more available for dev workloads. Uh, and something to check out if you are not totally locked into your cloud vendor <laughs> in some terrible way, uh, you might be able to run your dev instances here. Uh, or some of your smaller projects that don't need quite the same level of services. Uh, you get a pretty nice little setup here.
3: Yeah, I mean, I was, I was, I'm impressed by Managed Kafka and some of the other. You know, the dabbling into the managed service aspects of cloud is not something that the, you know, other than the big three have really dabbled in, which I'm pretty excited about you know it's it's not just storage and compute sweet um i think that's pretty fantastic and and definitely is something that i would try out i don't know why i can have so much hatred for for oci but you know i'm i'm sort of rooting for the underdog in DigitalOcean on this think competition's great it's awesome well
1: i mean it's hard to call oracle an underdog in any Const- <laughs> yes, I mean, they Ray- might be the fourth cloud provider out there, but they're not an underdog. <laughs> or anything else?
0: Rabid dog, maybe. <laughs> 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 yeah. All right, Paper Space on-demand pricing for an H100 is just under nine dollars now. Oh, or with a with a three-year commitment, you can get it for two twenty-four now. From two twenty-four now,
2: oh.
0: that's, uh, that's quite a commitment. <laughs> Comparison:
1: uh, How much? How much is that exact same thing on Amazon? Do you know?
0: No, i'll check it out.
1: Let's see, it may, not, it may not be as bad as you think. Mm-hmm. I I suspect that it's reasonably priced.
2: So it's about fifteen hundred a month
1: if you rent for the full month. But I mean, Jonathan's not going to rent for the full month, is he? Well,
2: no, no, that was that was with the committed three-year, <laughs> oh, commitment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the three-year commitment. Yeah, with three-year commitment. Yeah. Yeah. So it's about sixty thousand dollars over the three years.
3: Which would make sense if you're you know trying to build that into your app. And-
0: yeah, I'll yeah, put it back on my Christmas
3: list.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can run for an hour, Jonathan. It's only nine dollars. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You'll lose interest after two. It's fine. Yeah. Eighteen bucks, worst case.
0: That's the trick. <laughs> Versus it's twenty-one
1: thousand.
3: Like, I mean, yeah. the the interest is you know like the, it wanes right. So it's not just one hour. It's not like you can get all it done. It's like, ooh, I have a new idea, and that'll be like
0: two minutes, two minutes here, two minutes there. And you're paying for the hour each time. <laughs> Yeah, when you're like an AI cooperative where people just pool to buy resources and then share them. I guess it's kind of like <laughs> a, a cloud a company. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> We're creating
2: a cloud on a
0: cloud, guys.
2: Yeah.
0: But nonprofit. Yeah.
3: Mm. All right, well, that's all I got,
1: you guys. I, I, I scraped the bottom of the barrel for this week. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the joy of recording a show between the 1st of January and the 8th when all the kids go back. Uh, and uh, I assume that we'll start seeing some more news starting next week, as we do, usually do. And then we're, we're heading into uh, a busy first quarter and uh, second quarter as we hit Google next in April. It's, that's
3: like tomorrow, practically. It's it's gonna be tomorrow. It's gonna feel like tomorrow all of a sudden. I know it. It's gonna yeah. Sneak up. I'll sneak right on up on us. So,
1: all right, guys, have a great week. See you next week. See you later. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. And that is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag theCloudPod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign up instructions.